Captain, we have them. We've established Transporter Lock, the Star Trek Discovery podcast. Join Ken and Sabriel each week as they explore strange new episodes, seek out new plots and new characters, and boldly go where no podcast has gone before. Hello and welcome to Transporter Lock episode number 64, recorded Friday, November 6th, 2020. I'm your co-host, Chief Engineer, Ken Gagney. And I am Captain Sabriel Mastin, and welcome back to another episode here. I'm going to contest that, Captain C, because I don't think that all the cadets have been counted yet, and we can't declare anything until only the legal cadets are counted. <laughs> too soon, Ken. Too soon. <laughs> it's been a week or a month or a year. I don't know which. I'm sorry. I had to say something. Uh, this is currently the year of November 6th. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Jeez. Okay, so we are here to talk about Star Trek Discovery, Season 3, Episode 4, Forget Me Not. And we're not going to do much of a TLDR, except that, you know, they went back to Trill and a lot of cool stuff happened. But wow, Bree, you first told me that this was the episode you needed this week. And I asked you, do you mean that just any Star Trek would be a soothing balm in such a difficult time? And you said no. I mean, yes, but this episode specifically. And once I watched it last night, oh, I was just holding my breath through the last half and I was crying and it was it was such a beautiful episode. It was. Uh, for future generations who listen to this, uh, this is a very troubling week in the U.S. elections and uh, for uh, a lot of reasons. And it's just been very tumultuous. And... It's been rough. It's been really rough. I'm not going to. Yeah, it's just been rough. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I'm not going to sugar- sugarcoat it, but I am. Uh, but, and then Thursday happened. And at first, again, I had one of those days where, like, oh, I, I was awake for a few hours. Like, oh, it's Star Trek Day. Because uh, I kind of lost track of a lot of time. In the past, I thought maybe it was just because I wasn't interested in lower decks, but maybe it was just that. Time has lost a lot of meaning this year. Yes. Uh, and so I watched this episode, not really knowing other than I did watch the preview. And wow, uh, the emotions and tears and just relief that had on me was nice. And I'm talking particularly, uh, probably obvious if you've seen the episode, of the relationship between Adira and Gray. We can dive more into that in a moment, but I want to make it obvious which part I think we're both talking about. Yeah. Adira, who we met last week, has joined the crew of the Discovery with her Trill symbiont, who she can't communicate with and is having trouble processing all the memories thereof. And they went back to Trill. And I didn't expect that for some reason. But after going back to Earth, I should have thought, gee, what other planets are we familiar with from a thousand years ago might we see again? And so off to Trill they went. And Trill, from the small slice of it we saw, has not changed a lot in the last 930 years. No, uh, but they did mention while they were there that the burn basically decimated their um, symbiont population, uh, which is a huge cultural part of their society uh, and so they're clearly suffering even if even if they're hiding in their own you know isolationist little world uh they're having a hard time 
Right, because they say that only 10% of the trail population is compatible with symbionts. So if a host somewhere out there dies, they can't get easy access to another potential host. So the symbionts themselves, I'm sure, are fine in the pools. It's just that they no longer have as many places to go. And you're right about it being isolationist. One of my favorite Star Trek novels was the anthology The Lives of Dax, where each chapter is a short story from one of the previous hosts in chronological order. And I think the very first host was a politician where at one point in Trill's history, an alien ship showed up and wanted, you know, had no malicious intent, but wanted to exchange some barter and learn more about the Trill. And the Trill were very hesitant to do so. And this politician, this Dax said, you know, I think we should be open to these things. And for, you know, and somebody said, well, how much of our Trill culture are we willing to let go of and potentially expose to external threats? And Dax said, well, what if they need just a single ounce of water from our caves of Makala? We should be willing to give at least that much. And that basically tanked the conversation because everybody said, absolutely not. They're not touching anything associated with our precious Trill symbionts, not even an ounce. That is a barrier we are not willing to cross. Non-Trill are not welcome here. And they sent the ship away. Uh, I, I know that's not canon, but I still think it, I find it fascinating to treat it as it was. And here we show, like a millennium after that incident with that life of Dax, that they get a symbiont back. And to them, symbionts are basically their history. And they were still held on to the belief so hard that, yes, the trail should, the symbiont should go on to spread more information throughout the world, even though they had not seen the symbiont for some time. And, uh, it's just a power that puts weight behind the meaning of allowing Adira to go back uncontested. Although that's, I mean, they certainly did contest it at first. They actually said, you're not welcome here. You need to leave this planet immediately, even though it was a miracle that one of their symbionts would come home. Yeah. I, I'm just talking about the very end, but um, we should jump to that though. Yeah. Jump to which part? To what you just brought up, that... Oh, yeah. The initial reception, the very chilly one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I was very disappointed. It, it seemed very black or white to them. Either they were going to keep Adira there and force the symbiont out of her, or they were going to send her away. There was very little middle ground until that one caretaker intervened and said, you represent a way forward for our culture. And I'm glad that somebody saw that and made that decision. But why did they have to make that decision so quickly? I would have thought the council would say, let us convene and we'll discuss this and get back to you. Please await aboard the discovery until we've arrived at our decision. I mean, okay, (laughs) I just answered my question. The the Uh answer is it's a one hour episode. (laughs) Exactly what I was going to say. Like, Like, Made for television kind of thing. Like we compressed like, you know, weeks or months worth of deliberation in one conversation. It's just how you do things in a lot of TV shows, unless your show is called Star Trek Trill. <laughs> uh, Which I would watch. <laughs> me too, probably. Uh, but yeah, we just had to narrow down to these are the th- two main arguments and the middle person. And we're going to condense this down hyper quick. Uh, hang on, folks, kind of thing. Mm. And- well, that that also actually answers another 
observation I had, which was it sure is convenient that where the Discovery shuttle landed and where they met with the council was so close to the caves. Because if there is only one cave, and I don't know if there is, it could have been on the other side of the planet. But no, let's just let's take a quick walk over. <laughs> I mean, that's what I, I actually thought about something like this while watching like we see them get on the discovery and just or on the shuttlecraft and just land. And I'm thinking like, yeah, you know what? I'm kind of glad they glaze over, gloss over the whole like landing protocols and where should we land and what should we do part of the show that everyone just seems to know where to go, but like realistically, quote unquote, it's just all off air. Right. Although can you imagine the trail saying, okay, here are the corners to land. And when you get off the ship, you have to walk through this forest. We're not going to be there to greet you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like so rude. About 300 feet away. Uh. <laughs> Don't get lost. But I love the interaction Michael had with the caretaker who tried to lead them astray. And like she oh. just, she just pulled out her phaser, shot those two guys, tried to have a conversation with the other person. When he said, you'll never, she's like, okay, boom, boom, phaser stunned. <laughs> and I think Adira was correct. That was not Starfleet protocol. <laughs> yes. Um, during my rewatch of the show today, the episode today, um, they, they, I mean, it was clear there was going to be contention because it was early on in the episode still. But uh, when Saru contacts uh, a trill, uh, Voss answers, and he makes a comment how it's a blessing to have a symbiont return when Saru was like, we have a symbiont on host. And like, this is totally foreshadowing if you didn't see it coming. Um, and then, yeah, Voss, guy in yellow, was like, yep, the symbiont is important. And the other guy is like, no, everything's important. And, uh, there's our, there's our, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Come conflict for the episode. I just, I just noticed it more on my second viewing, like yellow guys, guy in yellow is going to have uh, a bit more part of this, a bit more of our antagonist role in this today. Why did you feel that? Because when he holographically projected onto the bridge of the Discovery, he seemed so gracious and welcoming. I mean, they it was a more it was a warmer welcome than they got on Earth. You could see Saru let his breath out when he asked, "So uh -huh. we're welcome here?" And they said, "Absolutely." Well, yeah, that's what I was saying. Like for him, the the wording was or the wording was the key here. I noticed on this rewatch because you're right; it was a very welcoming. Nice reprieve from what they've had to deal with so far, but just the word he said, symbiont return instead of, you know, like person. Oh. Uh, was just a, a small little nudge hint about what's about to happen. It hmm. wasn't uh, blatant in your face. If you didn't notice it, you didn't lose anything, but it's just something I noticed in my rewatch I thought was interesting. I mean, on one hand, that is incredibly racist and demeaning of them. On the other hand, symbionts are so much rarer than hosts. And so, like, when a host dies, they are, in a way, replaceable because their memories don't die. They live on. So, in, in a sense, hosts are immortal. It's the trill, the symbionts, when they die, so much is lost. And we even saw, not only you and I, a lot of that in Deep Space Nine, but even this episode when Grey was like, all these lives, all these memories, what's going to happen to them? Yeah. By the way, this is... The first time we have seen the caves since the Deep Space Nine episode Equilibrium, which was also season three, episode four. Oh, was it? 
totally a coincidence, not intentional, but I thought that was fun. They look very different from what we saw on DS9, which is not surprising, just like how Pike's Enterprise looks very different from the one in the 1960s. They're allowed to reimagine these things. Yep. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 I liked this cave. I I thought it had a lot of a look and feel of a spa. You know, especially how they said, oh, go into these other rooms, put on these nice flowing gowns, come back out. When you come out of the pool, we'll be waiting there with towels for you. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if the towels were warm. Oh, for sure. Of course, they have the the warming rocks. and Right, right, exactly. (laughs) I did think it odd that it it seemed like Adira and Burnham physically disappeared into the water. Yeah. Um peculiar and no one seems shocked by this except for uh michael right <laughs> and so i just don't remember the episode equilibrium maybe it happened there too i mean i don't remember that much detail about it so maybe it happened there too i just don't remember i, I mean that's the episode where jedzia finds out that one of her previous hosts was a serial murderer yeah uh, and i only remember her like walking into the pool and other symbionts like zapping her with electricity and that's how they communicated. Um, this one was much more stylized and you in particular pointed out the beautiful cinematography. Yeah. I loved the camera work of it happened both Adira and Michael where they're laying in the water in the pool, uh, you know, doing uh, just what's the called? It's not backstroke, just laying on your back. Uh, there's a word for that, but dead man's float? Back, yeah. Dead man's float in the water. And, but the camera is upside down. So it looks like they're facing down, even though they're looking up. I thought that was just incredible, incredible cinematography there. I, I don't know if it's supposed to symbolize anything, but I looked damn cool. Yeah. I mean, they just took a, a shot at eye level and then they rotated it 180 degrees. And it's a simple thing, but the sort of thing that would never have occurred to me. Like, I'm not a cinematographer and I would present things pretty much as they're happening. And I wouldn't think to be like, oh, what if we made it look like they're looking down? So I I don't know if there's any particular symbolism behind it, but I just thought it was a very clever and creative shot. I liked it. Yeah. And, and when they're going into, I don't know, I'm just going to call it the Mayan Palace. Even though I don't know what's <laughs> But uh, they even had them, like, like, it showed the person falling up into the water, and then it would cut away, and they're falling up into the mind. So maybe it was like going up into the brain. I don't know. Just throwing things out there. Yeah, I liked the visualization they had of what was happening in Adira's brain and how Burnham was somehow able to be there with her. I liked the the tendrils reaching out to her and which Adira was originally afraid of, but then started to accept even as it became more painful and how if they ever felt threatened, it was because they were either misinterpreting things or because Adira herself was scared and it was a physical manifestation of that. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, Z, the guy in red, he even said, like, we don't know how this is going to look for you. (laughs) So, just like, we have no idea what's going to happen when you put your head in there. So, good luck. Uh, Right. And given that short story I read where they were so protective of the caves, I'm surprised that they let Michael go in after her. Because at that point, the other guardians had showed up. And they could have just as easily said, no, you humans stay here. One of us, Trill, will jump in the water after your friend. But instead, they said, no, you go ahead. We'll put these rods in the water to help you. <laughs> At that point, that they're is. like, oh, man, already someone's already contaminated this with their dirt and grime. I guess we're going to have to 
you might as well. You already <laughs> we'll get the vacuum, the pool cleaner out later. I guess that's true. I hadn't thought of that. The fact <laughs> that Adira and Michael, despite I mean, in addition to all the other commonalities outlined in this episode, are also both human. And so, if there's anything weird happening with Adira's physio uh, physiology because she's human, the same result could be expected from Michael, and therefore she might be able to better reach her. That makes sense. Thanks. Uh, related to why Michael's even here, and then I want to jump back to Adira, what Adira sees there. Yeah. Um, we start the episode with Culber talking about the stress and difficulty the crew is having. And uh, he's basically, we're showing him as a, I don't know, psychologist or psychiatrist role exactly, but he's offering this. But he's also just talking about... Um, He's being a guidance to a lot of people. And he even does that to Michael about a third of, into the way of the episode, suggesting that she go down to the planet with Adira, telling Michael that uh, Adira has had everything she's ever loved stripped away. And you understand that talking about her year alone, more or less here in the future. Uh, I thought, I thought Culber's just, the use of Culber in this way was incredible. And I think it was the right choice to have him talk to her about this and to point that out to the obvious, why she's the choice to go down to the planet. Yeah. Although I was wondering, why is it an either or why not send Culber and Burnham? I mean, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Culber's like, no, I got to invite the Thanksgiving up here. <laughs> well, I'm reminded of the old Nintendo and computer game Maniac Mansion, where you can only choose two of these four teenagers to be <laughs> yeah. in your party, so choose wisely. I'm like, okay, maybe there's a limit. Maybe there's only so many seats in the shuttlecraft. <laughs> but but you are right that uh, Culber is being very insightful. He's seen beyond the surface of what his readings show as he presented them later to Saru. And we also, in this see how much progress he has made since coming back from the dead because he's not thinking about himself. He's past his anger. I mean, last season he was, somebody would put a nice plate of food in front of him and he'd throw it against the wall and say, what's the point of any of this? Yeah. And he would not be able to be of help to other people if he had not first helped himself. You put your own mask on first. And we see in this episode, not only, what he's saying about Michael and Adira and what they've been through. He's also showing us how far he is in his own healing. Yeah. I thought that was incredible writing and incredible, incredibly put the way they did it just on air. It just looked really well. I, th I thought that was amazing. Yeah, that's the word I'm looking for. Amazing writing and acting. Yeah. And there are a lot of other people on the ship who are hurting, but let's keep talking about the trill aspect for now. Uh, yeah. Like we got to see in the flashbacks from, well, first of all, the reason we need the flashbacks is because Adira doesn't remember almost anything about her life. I didn't realize that until this episode, but she only knows the past year and some random memories from the symbiont, like how to make a Bajoran Hasbro. So was she blocking those memories because they were so traumatic, which we saw in these flashbacks? Or do you think it was that the Trill symbiont just joining with a human didn't work quite as well as they expected. And there were some unintended side effects of amnesia. I suppose it could technically be a bit of two, but for me, the show was to me, it felt loud and clear that it's because Adira went through a trauma. Um, falling in love with someone, especially 
Um, so I'm going to be reading into some context because uh, we kind of glossed over it a bit last week, but Star Trek.com was very much talking about how we've got a non-binary actor playing a non-binary character. and uh, But they keep using the pronouns, feminine pronouns. And now it's very possible and very likely that a character uses she, they, or something like that. So someone I'm going to say is assuming that um, the character of Adira is queer as we know it. Uh, I want to point that out, uh, even if it turns out to be. I'm making the assumption right now. Uh, and it can always change in the future if need be. But Adira went through some huge trauma. And this is... We don't know how the future looks on queer relationships, at least on that generational ship they were on, but the show is clearly trying to comment on today's society, even if it doesn't hold true to there. Uh, and it's irrelevant if it's safe or not on that ship. But Adira and Grey had a queer relationship. We have a non-binary person, an actor, whose character is dating a guy, but on the outside, it's in real life, it's a trans man actor. And so seeing this queer relationship and having something that's so beautiful to you, it's so beautiful and in our time can be still hard to do, uh, to go through losing that person can be extremely hard. Extremely. And to suddenly put yourself in a situation where you have to let them go and you're holding on to something that's holding on to their memory, you... Uh, it's easy to shut away. It's easy to try to hide that and just keep on pushing and not think about it as you put one foot in front of yourself each day. And so this scene was very much for today's context and not necessarily for the future. I know it's Star Trek and it's a fictional show, but this is very much meant to be referencing today. And so it was very much a trauma of losing someone like that. And that's not to say that that can't happen for hetero relationships or other non-queer relationships. It's just in this moment right now, it's very powerful for queer people to see something like that. And it's something that a lot of your queer people can understand. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. And we had a gay relationship in the first season where one of the partners was murdered, yeah. which is its own trope. And we see that happen again in this episode in a way. Yeah. And this time it's, it touched closer to me as a trans woman. It was meant a lot to me in the first season when I saw the refrigerator trope, the gays get stuck in a lot, uh, bury your gays. Uh, but now it's just hit even harder, uh, seeing this relationship. Um, so yeah, to answer the question, I think it was entirely because she was hiding the trauma from herself. Well, also, in addition to speaking to the world we live in now, there was a Star Trek aspect to this trauma, which was something I had never considered about Trill symbiosis. What happens when you take in a symbiont from a host who you knew personally? And, yeah, so, and so now Adira has the experience of her relationship with Grey from Grey's perspective. And that would certainly be traumatizing how I've lost this person and yet I still remember them better than I did when they were alive. And that would be something you might want to block until you're ready to cope with it. 
Absolutely. And we know that having a relationship with someone who was a past host is taboo for Trill. Uh, that was the whole uh, first lesbian kiss on Star Trek episode um, where Dax is looking at her pa- or uh, comes across someone who is a symbiont as well. A, uh, one of the past hosts and Jazzias were a thing. And so that was taboo. And just think about having to do it with yourself. Um, yeah. Wow. I think you put it very well. Like now you are seeing this person, you know, this person even better when they're dead. <laughs> yeah. It's rough. And when, and by the way, I wasn't clear in the episode what it was that killed Gray. You see this, mm. what looked to me like a black cloud approaching the ship. I found out from memory alpha, it was an asteroid that hit the yep, ship. I thought it was a black cloud. The first viewing, my second viewing. Like, oh, that's an asteroid. Gotcha. I could see it more clearly when I, before I didn't read that on memory alpha, but when I watched it the second time, when I knew what to focus on visually, like, oh, that's an asteroid. It's very clearly one when you know to look in that spot. That makes sense. It is in the background of the show, and that's not where your eyes normally go unless you're looking for it. Exactly. And so once Adira accepted these memories, we had that scene where all the hosts come forward. That was, I think that's also the scene where I lost it because even though he had no connection with these people in the past, uh, it was so beautifully shot. And after such an emotional moment, uh, it was very moving. And for me, uh, I'm sure it was the intent. And it very much reminded me of, if you watch Doctor Who, those moments where uh, you see all the past doctors coming together. Uh, it was very much a, yeah, yeah, power. Uh, we got this. We can do this. Everyone's coming together. Uh, it felt really good. Yeah, as soon as the, I mean, the, that whole mindscape, that whole mind palace was very agitated. And one of the reasons for that was because these other hosts are trapped, not being able to communicate with the, the current host. And in that moment, when you see the agitation go away and the background becomes calm and soothing, as soon as that first strand appeared to start to coalesce into a previous host, I realized what was happening and it just took my breath away because I, I couldn't wait to see what was going to happen. Because whenever you see a previous host, which is rare, they're always so kind and warm and welcoming. And all five of these people showed up with just these beneficent f- smiles because finally they were, it was like welcoming a new person into the family, like yeah. whether it's a child being born or somebody marrying into the family. It's, they're like, we are now bigger and better because we have accepted each other. And I, when those five people first showed up, my second thought after everything I also just said was where's gray. And Gray immediately steps out from behind <laughs> Senatal. Like, yep, there, right there. There they are. Hmm. Um, one of the things, the scene where before the accident that caused the troll thing, it was Adira and Gray having a moment, a tender moment where Gray is playing cello for Adira. And Adira gives Gray a present of a quilt showing their memories. And this played big into the final scene of the episode where Adira is playing cello, something Adira couldn't do before. And um, there's some weirdness going on there that we'll talk about in a second, but just that moment of 
that ghost, the movie ghost moment where uh, Gray is helping uh, Adira with the cello. It was so moving. That's where I lost it the most. And so are you implying that they're going to take up pottery next? <laughs> uh, I could see it. No. Uh, <laughs> but that was so moving. Oh, so well done. It was so beautiful. Yeah. And it occurs to me that we don't know what the minimum age is for or is recommended for a trill host. We know that Adira is 16 because she said so last week. And so if she received the symbiont a year ago, she was 15, which seems awfully young. I mean, imagine at 15, you don't know who you are yet as a person. You're still in your formative years. And to suddenly have centuries of experiences and memories put into yourself more broadly, it would be confusing for that individual. But also, I can see Adira's perspective where she was dating a 15-year-old peer, and now that peer has hundreds of years on her. That would be difficult for two adults to navigate, and what we see here is two kids trying to navigate it. Yeah, that's uh, wow. And just thinking here while you're talking here, um, I don't know why I didn't make this connection before, I guess. Um, the trill to the trans community have been pretty important because the you know the characters or the, the symbiont will often bounce between different gendered people, and the tr- just trans people in general have just taken a connection with this, meaning something like that. And a lot of people, uh, trans people, found Jadzia a powerful character because a char- favorite character of theirs because of the curse on moving to Jadzia thing, and here to have a trill be such a powerful moment to trans characters, actors on TV is freaking amazing. I, in a way I just hadn't thought about it until just now. Um, it was a perfect Star Trek species to use for that story. Yeah. Oh, I'm very happy. I, I wish I would have thought of that sooner. I got something to tweet about in a few minutes. <laughs> or an excuse to watch the episode a third time. Yes. <laughs> Or listen to Star Trek uh, or Transporter Lock. Right. Transporter Trill. Ooh, I bet that domain is available. There we go. Now, you mentioned that we would come back to that last scene with Adira, Gray, and the cello. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Image projected Gray. Memory Gray. Gray was here in the scene in bed, uh, sitting next to Adira. And uh, Gray asks, why didn't you tell Michael about me? And Adira's like, uh... I don't think she would have believed me. And then also Dara's like, why can't I, why are you here? Why can't I see you kind of thing? Basically, why basically can I see an image of you is what the implication was. But honestly, watching it both times, I couldn't completely rule out that we're having something fishy like Tilly's um, spore thing from season two. But to me, I just felt like this was a visual representation of seeing the, or the memory of Grey. But I couldn't, like I said, I couldn't completely rule out that there's something more going on here. I too hoped it was just we were seeing things as Adira imagined them, and that would make perfect sense. I hoped it was not another spore manifestation or something like it, just because we've seen that before. So I don't know what else it could be, though, because they, the way I read it, we're going to be seeing more of Grey. This is not the only episode that that actor is going to show up in. No, I think they definitely come. I feel like they're coming back. I hope they're coming back because they're really, they did a really good job. 
maybe this just means like how much Adi- this is not just Adira's. I'm guessing this is supposed to be just showing like this is not Adira's only moment in the season. Adira is going to have something more, and I bet you a Gray is going to play a part in that as well, or the memory of Gray and um, past lives, right? Because otherwise, like, I don't know. It just feels like they're just signaling there's there's more here than what, and not necessarily bad. It's just this character has more importance than two episodes. Yeah, and not only that character, but the rest of the Trill memories. I mean, you can't unpack hundreds of memories in just one closing scene. So who knows how else this is going to come up? Yeah, yeah. I have a logistical question about this, which, well, a couple of them, actually. So first, Admiral Senatal was on a generational ship. And you actually noted that this is now a thing again. What did you mean by that? Have we seen these before? Uh, generational ships. That was, um, I mean, it's just a science fiction trope, but, sure. um, Enterprise came across one. That's where Chip Tucker got pregnant. Oh. Um, or at least I'm pretty sure it was it. But, um, Voyager might have, there have been generational ships in Star Trek before. Okay. Um, I mean, Travis Merriweather more or less was on one. Uh, well, that's right. Cause that, they were so I, slow. Exactly. And that, in generational ship more in that context, cause it's a slow way to travel now. Uh, right. using sub light speed travel is basically what it's trying to say is not generational ships are a thing that's cool it's trying to show without saying it that interstellar travel is very slow right and yet when they had this accident they just happened to be passing earth because that's where adira woke up yeah um there's some there's some uh, gaps there still and why would a Starfleet member be there? And it's perhaps, you know, there was an accident. Uh, we don't, I don't know. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe, um, Semitol wasn't on the ship at the time and that's, but, or died nearby. And that's where, uh, this happened. Uh, I don't know if Semitol was actually on the same ship as Gray was here. Uh, there's just some inconsistencies, not inconsistencies, just some gaps that, yeah. Uh, I don't know if they're going to fill in yeah. or we weren't supposed to think about, or we're going to get answers <laughs> in the future. Well, I got the sense that Gray accepted the symbiont while on the generational ship, which would imply to me that Senatal was on the ship. And yet the signal that Burnham picked up from Senatal came from earth. Yeah. And yet if they were departing earth, they couldn't have gotten very far before like immediately colliding with an asteroid and having to turn around and go home. Which, like, even NASA nowadays can predict whether or not they're going to shoot something at Mars and uh, within the next year if they'll hit something on the way. So that would be kind of bad navigation if they left Earth, hit an asteroid, and turned around. Uh, the signal did happen 12 years ago, uh, and it was an asteroid. It seems like that's something that they normally could detect, but who knows what's going on in the ship at that time. Maybe it was an asteroid attack? I mean, it's been hypothesized in the past of using asteroids to attack a thing, but it takes a lot of pre-planning, and so that seems far-fetched. I forgot that the that the signal was sent 12 years ago, so that meant that Senatol sent the signal, and then 11 years later, presumably, was on a generational ship, died, gave its symbiont to Gray, who then, at some point in the near future, died and gave it to Adira, who then went back to Earth where the signal was sent 11 years earlier. Whew. Yeah, I don't think we're going to get answers to this. Yeah, and if we do, it's just something that they're just not giving us enough hints to. I mean, it's just how it is. 
Yeah. Um, Discovery likes to do that where they just give us little bits and just leave you wondering with no ability to figure it out based on the clues that they've given you yet. And it also ties into the question of if, regardless of whether or not they were on Earth or leaving Earth, you know, Senatol knew where the Federation was, despite yeah. at some point recently having been on Earth, which is apparently very far away, especially when you don't have warp drive. So I'm yeah. curious how he knew, like, A, that there was a Federation headquarters, and B, how to get there and where it was. Yeah, is this just our like DM version of a breadcrumb you're not supposed to question? Or <laughs> is there a deeper meaning? And I guess we're going to find out in the coming weeks. Yeah. I, I, again, these are things that probably aren't important, but for someone who is detail-oriented, such as myself, I can't help but at least ask the question, even if I'm not going to get an answer. Yeah, I mean, they're pretty good about filling in a lot of the details while leaving the stuff that needs to be blank. I mean, mm. we'll see. We'll see. And I think it's a good question to ask, though, because uh, it's something to look forward to in the future. Right. Or something to be disappointed by. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Ah, uh, they never answer this. It's kind of like, I've mentioned this before, that episode of TNG, I think it was season seven, where the Enterprise became sentient yep. and this little thing got birthed from it and we never saw it again. Like that could have so easily shown up in Voyager and given me the closure I've been waiting for for the last 25 years. Uh-huh. But no. Uh, speaking of sentient ships. Right. <laughs> we got a hint. Uh, we got our first timeline kinetical view of Zora on Discovery talking to Saru. That's right. Saru was asking the ship's computer for some advice and suddenly there was a blip on the screen. The voice changed to the same voice actor we heard from the short trek Calypso and we start getting some much more personalized suggestions and the ship referring to itself as I. Uh, yeah, so we're seeing you know, like the, the um, serialization of the <laughs> ship where it's more personalized for your use (laughs) yeah i love how like the normal level of quality of suggestion that saru could expect from the ship on how to make his crew happier was to reduce dairy intake (laughs) and then once the sphere data starts integrating itself it says or you could show them Buster Keaton. I'm like, those are two very different things. <laughs> or you could show this, you know, like, like copyrighted material or thing that's out of copyright that we can actually put on TV. But it does have a connection to Calypso because it seems like Zora has an affinity for old Earth uh, materials, which I think. Oh, that's is right, with Betty fun. Boop. Yeah. And um, the. Uh, uh, Audrey Hepburn movie? Yep. And uh, isn't also where they had the uh, Monte Cristo's Count of Monte Cristo too? Or am I thinking of something else? I, might be uh, thinking of I don't remember enough. that part, but I do remember Taco Tuesday. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, has, as Zara seems to have an affinity for Earth, but I guess Federation is primarily Earth uh, dominated. But anyway, um, yeah, the fun little thing with Zora there. And Saru seemed okay with it. Uh, he even mentions to. Uh, was it Michael at the end? No, 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 Culber. Culber. That, uh, that Discovery might be watching out over us as well. Uh, I'm glad Saru didn't try to take credit for that and try to keep the computer as his secret. So like, oh, I want to come across as a good leader, but I don't know how. As long as I put forward the computer suggestions on my own, people will think I'm smart. And that would not have been in character for him. Maybe before he lost his fear ganglia, it would have been. But... Well, I, I do agree with you, though, that this sphere data contains everything you need to create an artificial intelligence that wipes out 
all life in the known galaxy. And when Saru suspects that it has integrated itself with his ship, he doesn't seem worried by that. Now, granted, the suggestions that the ship gave him were good ones, and maybe he's inferring good intent from that. But I think a degree of skepticism would be healthy given what just happened with control. I was thinking that too. Like, like this is something not normal. I should probably, you know, look into it more. Uh, <laughs> I thought that too. But um, uh, yeah, no, that was a big thing. I do. Yeah, I mean, that's just yeah. an end sense period, but related. Um, uh, well, I, because I'm concerned that like they need their ship to do what it's told. And what happens if they tell the ship, we need to jump to this planet, and the ship says, no, I think it would be better if we go over here instead. I mean, that kind now, of happened last season, didn't it? I mean, they they tried to get the ship to blow up, and it wouldn't. Yeah, that's it. So there, we know that the ship is capable of defying orders, and that is how, like... Colossus the Forbin Project, you know, classic movie about a computer going rogue and taking over the planet. And the computer says he's doing it for humanity's own best interest because humans want to destroy themselves. And he's t- the computer is taking things over to stop humans from doing that. But he's also taking away the humans' free will and their agency. And so mm-hmm. that is something that I think Saru and especially Stamets should be concerned about. What if Zora and Discovery disagree about what the ship should do next. And that's the classic old AI Star Trek um, conundrum, too. I mean, they, they ran through that a lot, a few times in TOS. Right, right. And, you know, like, you could call Data, the character, a uh, artificial intelligence, in which case he's an example of a benevolent one. But in general, science fiction is lacking benevolent artificial intelligences. Yeah. So, so I'm not concerned because you and I have seen Calypso and we know how this turns out. But actually, that ties into another question is where this whole season is going. We presume they're – well, first of all, I like how quickly they tend to be resolving things like, oh, when is Discovery going to show up? It's in the next episode. When are they going to reunite with Michael? Oh, next episode. When is Adira going to get all her memories back? Up oh, next episode. So Susan, who has been on the show, previously discussed with me on Twitter that she felt that season two started off with a lot of fluff. Like, who is the Red Angel? What is the Red Angel? Ooh. And it took a long time to figure that out when really the issue was controlled trying to get the sphere data to create an ai that was the overall thing yeah it was like a total misnomer like it didn't, didn't turn up it didn't matter really right and so th- this season the overall arch is or arc rather is what happened to the federation and these smaller things are steps to figuring out that answer but they're knocking them out in quick order and i like that so yeah. i'm so in if that pace continues, I expect that we'll probably jump to the Federation HQ next week. And I'm curious what you think we're going to find out, because from Calypso, we're inferring, perhaps incorrectly, that the Federation is now the Vidraish and might be the bad guys. Or the bad guys to someone. Right. Uh, they, they could be. I mean, everything else has been topsy-turvy this season, except for Trill. Uh, so there's lots of 
possibility said uh they definitely will keep it where the federation turns good if that is it because that's (laughs) that's just star trek but it might have a contentious moment we'll say that uh they're not quite themselves by the way we never got as far as i know in d space 9 or tng the answer to whether or not the planet trill is in the federation i always assumed it was but i don't know if it did either so so Memory Alpha, which is powered by the wiki software, in addition to the actual page of information you can read, has a tab where people talk about the edits that they want to make or have made to that page so that they can come to a consensus before making big changes. And the page on discussing whether or not the entry for the planet Trill should include whether or not they're in the Federation is very lengthy. <laughs> uh, there's even a, even at the very top of the Trill uh, memory Alpha thing, it says, while Trill were seen serving in Starfleet and as Federation diplomats, the Trill homeworld was never explicitly established to be a member of the Federation. See talk page for more information. Exactly. So the Star Trek Encyclopedia, a written uh, publication, says that they joined, I think, in the year 2385, which would have been decades before we ever saw them on TNG. But that is not ever officially declared in any show. And yes, Trill can be in Starfleet, but so can Klingons and Ferengi. Yeah. <laughs> so so that so that's why at the end of this episode when they said maybe we'll talk about joining the Federation in the future and Michael said it would be an honor and my thought was you haven't already or does this mean that you left the Federation at some point in the last 900 years? So I went to Memory Alpha and I'm like, "Oh, apparently it's not canonical that they were ever in the Federation." See, I just assumed it mean rejoin, but you're right. But you're at the time, I mean, when I saw that. But yeah, you're right. We never did. Well, well, right. I mean, my initial thought was the same as yours until I was like, oh, I just made an assumption. That's fascinating. Look at that. It made an ass out of them. (laughs) Not out of you and me, because we're amazing. So there's a lot more. Oh, um, by the way, when Zora mentions uh, showing Buster Keaton, and Saru ends up doing that at the end, two things. One, it reminds me of Movie Night on the NX-01. Mm-hmm. which I thought was a great tradition. And second of all, this may be like my second favorite moment in the entire episode was when Linus gave Emperor Georgiou some popcorn. <laughs> and also a Discovery like branded popcorn box, which I love. Was it? I didn't look that closely. Or Star Trek branded. I think it had the little Delta on there. I thought, it was- oh, that's great. Because <laughs> I was actually like, oh my God, is she going to accept it? What's she going to do? Like, I didn't know. What is in character for her anymore? I can never tell. She could have just <laughs> ignored it. She could have thrown it back in his face, but she's like, fine. And she starts eating it. I was like, ah, you like it. Uh, very quick note on that. I thought it was, I was like, yes, at the very last ship. You know, in Star Trek, often shows the, pl- the ship flying away from the camera. If you look at the shuttle bay, you could see the movie being played in the shuttle bay, which I thought was great. You have a great eye for detail or a better television than me, because that is another background detail that I overlooked. Uh, I watch for that kind of stuff. I'm always watching for background actors to see who's walking by the camera one direction when they just walk by another way or (laughs) who's repeat. I'm always watching for that stuff. Uh, It doesn't mean I catch it all, but I love doing that. Oh, that reminds me. I'm sorry, I keep forgetting her name. Uh, she is on the bridge crew. She's replaced Arium. She has blonde hair. Do you remember the character's name? I already forgotten. We just talked about it last week. Right. 
Yep. Well, I think this actually may have come up in a previous transporter lock, and I already forgot, but that is the same actor who played Arium in season one. So when the actor who played Arium in season two, when Arium died, she was basically replaced by season one's Arium. Yeah. Uh, interesting casting notice that it was. Um, they're like, I mean, well, I want you on here, but we don't want to have to put you in Android makeup every week. I don't know. Or maybe like they wanted to keep her on the show, but they knew they're going to kill the character. So we're like, let's recast you so that we can bring you back. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, um, I'm sure there's a story about that, that if I just Googled hard enough, I could find it. But uh, Nilsson. That's right. She has great ratings. <laughs> Sorry. Okay. So, so I'm done talking about all things Trill in this episode, as well as generational ships and the Federation. There's a lot more in this episode. Shall we move on to that? Yeah, we're going to talk about it quickly because we're running out of time, but it was technically probably the B plot of this episode. And I thought it was wonderful to show that uh, the whole, whole other uh, theme of this episode was, you know what? It would be really traumatic if we had to leave everything behind after it's been gone for 800 years and it was just a blink of an eye for us. And we would probably get PTSD from this. And yep, Star Trek is finally doing some justice to the concept of PTSD beyond one episode with Nog. Uh, with Nog and one episode with uh, Janeway in Voyager. Yeah. Oh, uh, that's right. Uh, Night. Night, season five, episode one. Um, but really, but this is more associated with Janeway's kind of PTSD because all of a sudden, our decision as a crew, our decision had put us away from this everything we knew, everything we knew in all the universe. And we see everyone's not having the best time. We see Stamets and Tilly fighting on the on uh, in engineering. We see, we finally get um, some answers for why Detmar's been the way she is. Uh, she's just this jock who's being asked to think about her feelings. Uh, I, I college, I knew a lot of pilots because I went to uh, pilot school and yeah, they're all a bunch of them were jocks. Um, and if it very fitting, um, we just see that the crew is going through some trauma in the past two episodes. They mentioned it or at least past episode or two, whatever, but they didn't really show it as much except for Detmer. And now here they're finally showing it. And I thought it was really well done and I hope they continue to show it more. Um, I think having the uh, tropey Thanksgiving dinner of dinner and a show uh, was the perfect way to do it in Star Trek as well. Yeah, you and I talked last week about how we would feel if we were put into the future. And one of the comments I flippantly and callously made was, I wouldn't care if all my friends and family were dead because at least I knew they led good lives. But then this episode said, what if there is nobody alive left who would miss you if you were gone? And I was like, Oh crap. <laughs> I didn't think of that. Yeah. I'm like, yeah. wow. Like, what if you didn't matter to anybody? And I'm sure there are people who feel that way, even though it's not true. But what if it was literally true? Wow. Yeah. Uh, so the whole connecting, finding something to connect to, even if it is each other, uh, really. I, th I think it's very important. I think that this, that exploring that is really important, especially these days. I mean, TV has changed in Star Trek in the past, and 2020 has been rough. And they didn't they made this before 2020 happened, but uh, it's been a, small, a tough time for a few years here. And so, to show trauma over time, 
uh, I really enjoy it. I appreciate it. And it seems, it feels like it's doing it justice, which a lot of TV shows would have a hard time doing. Because even Star Trek has failed or done decent enough job in the past, such as with Nog and Janeway. Yeah. I mean, it's okay to admit that you're not okay. That's one of the things that our friend Susan, again, knows so well because she co-founded an entire nonprofit that advocates for that mindset. And we saw that with Nog coming to terms with the fact that he wasn't okay. But it's not something that comes up a lot. And we saw it a lot in this episode. And we've seen it building all season up to this episode. And granted, we're less than halfway through. But the fact that it wasn't just a one-off is kind of unprecedented, even in the serial nature of Deep Space Nine. Yeah, uh, I really dig it. Um, I loved the Thanksgiving dinner scene. I know it's not Thanksgiving, but uh, <laughs> we did establish that Thanksgiving still exists because it's chilly. But um, I love this. And just like Jarjo played the uncle who doesn't, or the, the cousin or like teenager who doesn't care about all the drama or thinks it's hilarious. Hmm. While everyone else is fighting. Uh, we have Saru playing the dad who is trying to get everyone together. It looks like it's working and then everything falls apart. He's like, oh, and uh, we get uh, Detmer, who's the uh, black sheep of the family, comes in and says something that's just traumatizing to everybody else. Uh, I was surprised she went that way because that was dark even for her and potentially threatening. Like She's like, I'm talking about your blood and I'm not trying to make a joke. I mean, Stamets had not said or done anything directly to her to offend her i mean maybe his attitude in general he's a pain in the ass but that was just an unprovoked attack in my opinion oh i mean it was an attack it was stressed induced uh you're not always in your right mind when you're feeling that way uh i don't Fair. think he would do that normally but i mean especially but these two i feel like now that i saw this like they've had a they should have more of a connection in show than we've seen because of that pilot flying nature. I hadn't really put that two, to, the two and two together until here. I'm like, you know what? I, I feel like that's a missed opportunity for the last two years of having these two closer together. Yeah. I love that scene where they just wordlessly hugged because yeah. nothing needs to be said. They're both sorry. And I really like how I think, I think it was Tilly who said, we're not okay. And Captain Saru, you gave us the opportunity to admit that. And that's how we can get better. Yeah. Um, I, I was honestly surprised when Stamets then interrupted that one-on-one moment to apologize. At the beginning of the episode when he was mean to Tilly, I was like, well, that's in character for him from season one. And he's kind of stressed out right now. So I guess I can see that. And then again, at the end of this episode, just like we've been seeing with Culber, People are getting better. They're evolving as people to not be jerks, to be empathetic to each other, to recognize that we're all in the same boat together because we're all one family. And Stamus just said, hey, I'm sorry. Nothing I have done here would have been possible without you. Let's talk about dark matter. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because yeah, exactly. It looked like we're just getting a flashback to season one Stamets. Like, who is this? He is not the same person anymore. And all of a sudden, he reverts back to that. And, you know, I think that just shows a good sign of showing us some char- subtle character um, development, too. Well, you know, evolution is not always linear. <laughs> and we, we, you and I were talking about that at the end of last week, about he, how he was very kind with Adira. Even though Adira had sabotaged his ship, he was just like, 
Let me put all my cards on the table. I'm the human interface, and you'll meet nobody like me. You know, and then this week he was a jerk again. And yeah, you know, I have moments where I'm a jerk, and I hope that people in as kind a fashion as possible will let me know that I'm not living up to my best version of myself and that I have the potential to do better. Yeah. And I think, I don't know where that realization came from Stamets. I don't know if he stormed off and said, oh man, I was a jerk. Or if maybe he sat down with Culber, who apparently is a good listener and said, Hey, I just had this dinner or, you know, Culber was there. So he saw it happen. And Culber's right. Like, you know, Paul, I could not, you know, Kayla should not have said and done those things, but here's why she might have. And here's how you could have responded. I think you said it just right. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Let's see. uh, Anything else to say about, Oh, one thing I, so maybe this is a detail that is immaterial, but okay. So we know that everybody here is dealing with, if not PTSD, at least a lot of stress. Do you think Detmer in particular feels responsible for having crashed the ship or that she's the one who flew them into the future? So she feels like I'm the one who cut everybody off from their families. Is there something in addition? Oh, it's the latter one. Second one to me. That was like, she felt responsible because she was behind the controls. Um, It's deeper. I'm sure because any trauma is that way. But for me, that's what it felt like Uh, they were trying to imply. Okay. That makes sense. Um, Anything else about this week's episode? Yeah, I, I did. Uh, I, I forgot to mention when Suru was talking to the computer about ideas. Uh, he did that in the first season too, when he was talking to the computer about how to be a good captain. And here we're seeing him talk to the computer again, talking about options. And in a lot of the past, we would see him consulting with someone and he does consult for people for their ideas, but either other captains have talked to the computer more and we've never seen it on air or he... I think this is showing him trying to do research and then uh, on his own and then going out asking for others if he needs it. It's just showing a different aspect of captaincy than we've seen before, which I find interesting. And I feel like there's more to explore there and what that means as a character. Well, that's a good observation. A couple of thoughts I have is one on the Shenzhou. He was not the first officer. He was the science officer. So he's been promoted to captain probably quicker than he expected. He was even expecting Michael to be captain once they arrived in the future. Mm-hmm. So not only is he learning on the job, but cut off from the Federation, he has no superiors to look up to and to be mentored by. You know, he had Captain George U, he had Captain Pike, and now he has nobody. So he has to ask somebody these questions and he has nobody left that he can do so in private. Yeah. Uh, I think it's fascinating. I hope we get to see more of that. I, I hope to explore that more in the future. Mm. Uh, it's not necessarily required, but I feel like it's interesting. Sure. Anything else on this week? Um, I, you know, there's no preview for next week, but I saw one. So I always skip the preview. I mean, like Usually as soon as the episode ends, it says next week on Star Trek Discovery. And that's when I hit the stop button. But I wait for it to pop up before I hit stop. And this week it didn't. It went right into the credits. Now, I think we have had this disparate experience or disparate experience before where we're watching the show. We're consuming it differently. I'm using the CBS All Access app on my Apple TV. What, are you watching it on Amazon or something? Yeah, I 99% of the time I watch it on Amazon through their All Access channel. I basically just 
the same amount of same cost, but I get to use Amazon's video player instead of CBS's all accesses player. Uh, I did it. have an issue last week or two weeks ago where whatever reason it wasn't on Amazon. So I had to watch a backup copy uh, <laughs> of the episode until the rewatch. <laughs> but yeah, uh, that's weird. Yeah. And then, but I did have one more note, but so, so there was a preview. I saw it. I'm not going to tell you anything. Okay. But, um, but there was something well, we've seen the episode titles and one bit of conjecture I wanted to put out there. Let's hear it. In TNG, there were two episodes called Unification. Unification one, Unification Two. This is where Spock is working on the reunification of Vulcan and Romulus. Right. One of the episode titles for this season of Discovery is Unification Three. <laughs> Ah, uh, wait, it's unification, not reunification? No, the first one was unification. And the first or the first pair was unification, and so is this one. I think it was reunification. No, uh, I can 100% guarantee that I looked it up just before this. Uh, it was talking about about reunification, but the episode was called Unification. Unification parts one and two with Spock? Yeah. Oh, you're right. Damn it. <laughs> But uh, so all of a sudden we have Unification 3 coming up. Well, Leonard Nimoy's dead. Yeah, but we still have a Spock that we just saw. And I don't know if they're going to go that route uh, or anything related. Maybe he put some breadcrumbs. Maybe he talked to... He's trying to find Michael. I mean, it's, Wait. It, uh, so you're, you're thinking it... Okay, I just Googled how long do Vulcans live. The answer is 220 years. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, I think there's potential for some kind of breadcrumb for Spock to try to to send share something to Michael. No guarantee. Might be just me. It's purely conjecture based on an episode title. And I thought it was very interesting and I wanted to note it before it happens and before, before I forgot. No, I think that's uh, that's very astute and very possible. I think some tie-in to the past makes sense. If we had more time to chat today, which we don't because I have a meeting coming up. I would ask what other Star Trek planets do you think we would see? Familiar ones like Vulcan or Klingon. Uh, we know that this is the timeline where... No, we don't know that. That's in Picard. Like, Is this the timeline where Romulus blew up or the one where Vulcan blew up? I, to my understanding, it's this is the Prime Universe. Because we okay. really know that, but I've always assumed it was the Prime Universe. So it's the one where there's no Romulus. Okay. Correct. Okay. Yeah. I've been hoping we would see not just familiar planets, but somehow familiar characters or evidence of them. And I love your theory that Unification 3 might be where that happens. Yeah. Fascinating. Oh, this has to be Prime Universe because Pike was on the Enterprise for more than just a few seconds. Oh, that's right. Good call. Uh, one last thing. You had some tweets that caught some attention this week. Oh, yeah. I talked about uh, the queer moments in this week's discovery and Anthony Rapp liked my tweets and I just made me very happy. Did you tag him in the tweet? Nope. How did he find it? I did link to, I basically quote tweeted him or linked to one of his tweets. And I'm guessing that showed up in his timeline and he like, 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 uh." yes, that (laughs) would be a notification, not a unification, but (laughs) notification. (laughs) But it just made me happy, happy little moment. Yay. Well, uh, those are moments that we need to treasure these days. Hell yes, especially this week. Yeah. Uh, but I think uh, we're going a little long in the tooth. 
And I also think we'll have a lot more to celebrate in a coming week. So there will be Transporter Lock number 65 next week for Season 3, Episode 5. Stay tuned. Until then, hit it. If you've enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes and keep your hailing frequencies open by following us on Twitter at Transporter Lock or subscribing to our podcast and email newsletter at TransporterLock.com. Do you do vocal warm-ups before we podcast? Uh, not usually. I, I have in the past for some things, but not typically. I do only because since my day job is sitting on a computer, I'm not talking to a lot of people. And so I feel like I need to remember how to talk. <laughs> I find that I stumble over my words less if I practice first. I mean, for me, I just always have... I get so excited, I end up talking fast, and it's just a constant problem for me. And I have to mentally <laughs> to slow down. <laughs> I only talk fast when I know what it is I want to say, which is rare. <laughs> <laughs>